is taken from Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6, and can be found in the Pew Bibles on 1178. So that's Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to, be a, to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I am saying again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, Rather, I received it by revelation from Christ Jesus. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age about among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who, who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Caiaphas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally un unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, 
I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been trusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those are seen pillars, gave me and Bar Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that I should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thank you, Jenny. That's a long reading. It's, uh, there's a lot in there, and so I think we definitely need to pray for God's help to, uh, to understand this now. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, where you are, there is freedom. You inspired the writing of these words of Paul 2,000 years ago, and now we pray that you would inspire our hearing of them and our understanding of them. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to receive your word with joy, so that we too might be brought to the freedom of the children of God. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. What is Christianity all about? Well, I think the average person on the street thinks that Christianity is about going to church and trying to live a good, upright, moral life. And that if you go to church and if you live a good, upright, moral life, uh, then you get to go to heaven when you die. And I think most think that Jesus was a, a great religious teacher uh, and that Christians are that bunch of weirdos who sometimes wear socks and sandals together uh, who uh, try their best to live out his teachings. And of course, they're right that Jesus does teach us how to live. But what most people don't understand, and actually, sadly, some who uh, may have been going to church for a lifetime, is that at the heart of the Christian faith isn't good advice, do X, Y, or Z in order to get in God's book, good, good books, but good news. In other words, that God has done something for us in Jesus that changes everything. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia that we started looking at last week and which we'll be exploring through July and August is all about this good news. 
the gospel. The gospel just means good news. The gospel, as we saw last week, is summed up by Paul in verses 4 and 5. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul sums it up in uh, verses 4 and 5 just before this. In other words, the gospel isn't a self-help manual. It's an announcement that God has done something in and through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to rescue sinners because of which the world is a different place and because of which we can relate to him in a brand new way. It's about what God has done for us, not about what we do for God. And Christianity started as a Jewish messianic movement. The Jews were uh, expecting and looking for a messiah, a rescuer, a savior. However, the message of Christianity was for all people, not just the Jewish people. And so the movement soon began to spread to non-Jews. And by the time that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter, there were probably just as many non-Jewish followers of Jesus as there were Jewish followers of Jesus. But this sparked a conflict in the life of the early church. You see, historically, God's covenant partners, the people of Israel, were set apart from everyone else by certain practices that marked them off from everyone else. Practices like circumcision, like eating kosher food, like observing the Sabbath. And the debate that was stirring boiled down to this Do these non-Jewish Christians have to follow all of these Jewish laws in order to be part of this new family? And the reason why Paul wrote this letter and the reason why we have it in our Bibles today is because some of those Jewish believers had traveled to the Galatian churches and taught them that unless those non-Jewish believers were circumcised and followed all the other Jewish laws that set them apart from everyone else, they couldn't be true members of God's family. And Paul was absolutely distraught. You know, in the rest of Paul's letters, and you can flick through them uh, in the New Testament, uh, you'll see that he begins with uh, some pleasantries. He starts with prayers and praises and thanksgivings and commendations to the churches. But here in Galatians, there's none of that. Instead, we've got these very short first five verses, and then he cuts straight to the chase. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You you can almost hear Paul tearing his hair out in frustration. The way I hear it is a little bit like Victor Meldrew. I don't believe it! He's like a parent who's absolutely devastated by the decision that his kids just made. He's, he's angry, he's also heartbroken. He's angry because, not only because these, these false teachers are calling Paul's authority into question, but because he saw that Jesus' glory was at stake. This wasn't a trivial issue that they were arguing over. It was something absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. But Paul was also heartbroken because he, he knew how much this mattered. Souls were at stake. He saw that this twisting of the gospel 
would have eternal consequences for people. And so he writes this letter to the Galatian churches to set the record straight. And here's what I hope we'll see by the end of our time this morning. Two things, that the gospel doesn't change, but it does change everything. So let's just look at each of those in turn. So the gospel says, the good news says, that people are brought into right relationship with God, not by what they do for themselves, but by trusting what God has done for them through Jesus. In other words, the biblical gospel, the gospel uh, that Paul is writing about, is about grace. That's to say it's all gift. The late uh, great John Stott explains, nothing is due to our efforts, merits, or works. Everything in salvation is due to the grace of God. So the gospel doesn't say that God, um, uh, sorry, the, the gospel says that God doesn't forgive us and give us a place in his family because we deserve it. It's not because we're really, really good. It's not because we've uh, got a, a frequent visitor stamp uh, every time we've come to church and we've got a hundred of those and now, yep, you're in, you get a free heaven pass. That's not how it works. He forgives us and gives us a place in his family because he's generous to undeserving people. Every other religion says that we can put God in our debt uh, by living well. But Christianity says that God pays our debt so that we can live well. And that's why the gospel is so precious, and that's why Paul is fighting for it tooth and nail in this letter. The reason why Paul is so bent out of shape as he's writing this letter to the churches is because the false teachers who are trying to insist that these non-Jewish believers be circumcised are changing the gospel. The gospel says that God receives us into his family entirely by grace, which we receive from him through faith because of what Jesus has done for us. The formula is very, very simple. The gospel equals Jesus plus nothing. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. But Paul's opponents, you see, that they weren't denying that we must believe in Jesus for salvation. They believe that you have to believe in Jesus. Their message was rather subtler. They said that you had to be saved. Uh, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus and follow all the laws. But what Paul saw was that as soon as you add anything to Jesus as the, uh, the, the foundation for our acceptance with God, we pervert the gospel. That's what he says uh, in, uh, in verse 7. These people were trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And uh, literally, that word that he uses in verse 7 is the, uh, a Greek word called metastrepsi, and it means to reverse. So what he's saying is that any revision of the gospel is a reversal of the gospel. It's turning it upside down and inside out until it's unrecognizable from the real thing. And that's why Paul says that this gospel that these false teachers were bringing was really no gospel at all. He 
It is, Tim Keller uh, explains, another gospel is not another gospel. It is no gospel. To change the gospel, the tiniest bit is to lose it so completely that the new teaching has no right to be called a gospel. Salvation is not free when you obey the law. Salvation is free, full stop. It's not like those offers in the supermarket. You know, buy one, uh, get, get this free when you purchase that. It's just free. And this wasn't a, an academic ivory tower debate for Paul. Why? Well, firstly, because as we said, any other gospel is no gospel at all. To suggest that we might, must add something to Jesus in order to be saved is to suggest that Jesus alone is not enough. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther explains in his 500-year-old commentary on Galatians, there there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness, so trying to make ourselves right with God by what we do. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And so a Jesus plus gospel is no gospel at all because it simply throws us back on our own resources and we can't save ourselves. And the second reason, though, that Paul says that this Jesus plus gospel is not just a betrayal of the gospel, but it's a betrayal of Jesus himself. So he accuses them of deserting the one who called them in grace. To turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the true God of grace. Paul uses some really strong language here. So that word that he uses to to describe uh, deserting uh, is a word that in Greek, uh, metatithemi, is a word that you would use for a traitor or a turncoat. This is treason. Abandoning gospel theology, he says, means abandoning Jesus personally. Theology matters because it's uh, shapes how we think about who Jesus is and what you do uh, in your theology sooner or later works itself out in your experience. You know, it's often the way that heresy, uh, wrong views of, of who God is and what he's like, begins with well-meaning attempts to simplify the truth. You mistake part of the truth for the whole truth. But the third reason why the defense of the gospel matters so much to Paul is because a different gospel brings condemnation upon those who preach it. So, again, so strong what Paul says. He accuses these false teachers of throwing the church into confusion. But again, that that probably isn't really strong enough. Paul says that they were troubling the believers. So to quote John Stott again, he says, to tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute, but those inside who train to change the gospel. Let the church of today take note. Paul even goes so far as to call down God's curse upon those who change the message of the gospel. So he, he, he says... 
uh, verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And we're tempted to think, isn't this all a bit over the top, Paul? And the answer is no, because as Paul goes on to say, the gospel he preached, in verse 11, he says, the gospel I, I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. In other words, to reject Paul, uh, to reject the gospel that Paul preached isn't rejecting Paul, it's rejecting Jesus. It's come from Jesus. And what's more, let's notice that this isn't just Paul being a bit ticked off. It's not just him being caught on a bad day. It's not just spite or hurt pride. Did you catch what he said? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. If anybody, including myself, preaches to you a different gospel, let them be under God's curse. This matters. Paul is passionate for the purity of the gospel, so much so that he's willing to call down God's curse upon him if he should preach anything else. And so the Christian gospel very simply says, all is gift. Uh, the 18th century American preacher Jonathan Edwards put it so clearly. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia isn't a call to try harder to be better Christians. No, it's a call to join up the dots, live out the implications of the gospel. He's saying a new life isn't required before God welcomes us into his covenant family. Rather, God's welcome into his covenant family is the basis for the new life in the family. The order is so important. Christian obedience isn't so that we can be accepted by God, but because we already are accepted by God. The Christian life isn't one of uh, anxiously trying to earn God's approval. It's of joyfully responding to a gift that God gives us. Uh, and as is so often the case, it's the poets of the church who have expressed the gospel in the clearest, most beautiful terms. So, for instance, the opening line of the great modern hymn uh, by Stuart Townend, In Christ alone, my hope is found. Those seven words say everything. The gospel is about us pinning our hopes on what God has done for us in Christ. Or how about these words from a, uh, an older hymn by Edward Motes? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean. On Jesus' name. So if you want to know whether or not you believe the gospel, let me suggest to you a really simple diagnostic question. What's the ground of your hope before God? What's the ground of your hope before God? And if you say, because I, I try to live a good life, or because I go to church, or uh, even because I ask Jesus into my life, I think you've yet got the gospel. Because in each of those cases, you're saying that your relationship with God is down to you. 
to your own religious work because you think that your good moral record is enough to get to God or because your good religious performance is enough to get to God or because your right faith is enough to get to God. If our answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, then we haven't yet fully understood and accepted just how radical the gospel of grace really is. So the gospel changes everything. The gospel doesn't change. That's the first thing we need to see. It's grace from first to last. But the second thing we need to see is that the gospel of grace changes everything. Paul doesn't leave his discussion of the gospel as a purely intellectual, heady exercise. Rather, he illustrates it from his own experience. Because if ever there was someone who knew that our relationship to God doesn't depend on our moral or religious performance, it was Paul. If ever there was someone who didn't deserve to be part of God's covenant family, it was Paul. If ever there was someone who needed to be accepted by God on the basis of grace rather than on his own record, it was Paul. Paul knew better than most that the gospel changes everything. Why do I say that? Because Paul was once the persecutor-in-chief of the early church. He was a Pharisee, which means that he belonged to the strictest group of the Jewish faith in the first century. Uh, Listen to how he describes himself in verse 14. Uh, He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, he was one of the top students in one of the most selective branches of the Jewish religion. And he believed that God's people needed to follow God's laws to the letter before God would restore them and rescue them from Roman oppression. So when a dangerous new heresy began to sprout, claiming to worship a crucified and risen Messiah, he thought it was his duty to stamp it out. Uh, In verse 13, he tells the Galatian believers, You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. But this is the amazing thing. God had other ideas. And the risen Jesus met with him as he was on the road to Damascus to go hunt down some Jesus followers there. He blinded him, knocked him out of his saddle, and his encounter with the risen Jesus changed the course of his life forever. It turned him about 180 degrees. And what's more, Jesus also said, I've got a job for you, Paul. I want you to go and to preach this faith that you've just been destroying. And I want you to do it to a bunch of non-Jews. God has a sense of humor. The transformation in him is so profound that a report reached the ears of the churches in Judea. Uh, and you can see it uh, in verse, verse 23. It says, they, they heard the report. Uh, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Uh, in another of his letters, Paul says that he was once a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. So if if salvation is about getting in God's good books, where does that leave Paul? 
But that's not how it works, he discovered. On the Damascus Road, Paul encountered the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, in, in 1 Timothy uh, 1, this is one of the letters that he writes uh, to a, a protege of his, Timothy. He goes on to explain that his salvation is proof that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. He says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if God can save me, he can save anyone. Nobody is too bad for Jesus. Not Kim Jong-un, not Vladimir Putin, not Myra Hindley, not you fill in the gap of the most despicable person you think in the world. Nobody is too bad for Jesus. If membership of God's family is based on what we do, then Paul of all new people knew that he would be forever on the outside. The gospel of grace wasn't just an idea to Paul. It mattered to him personally. If a right relationship with God comes about any other way than the sheer grace and mercy of a loving and generous God, Paul was in trouble. And we all are. And so the gospel is either 100% grace or it's not good news at all. It's really, really bad news. Paul knew firsthand the power of the gospel to turn a life around. He went from being persecutor-in-chief to propagator-in-chief. And I think this is just incredible. Just consider for a moment. In this book, in the New Testament, about 25% of the New Testament is written by someone who tried to destroy the church. Isn't that pretty amazing? The gospel changes everything. Grace that doesn't transform us isn't grace. And, uh, and we see this in the fact that Paul's encounter with the, the gospel uh, of Jesus didn't mean that he was free to go on persecuting the church as if nothing had happened. The, the risen Jesus met with Jesus, uh, met with Paul where he was, but he didn't leave him where he was. The gospel of grace didn't just wipe out the debt of Paul's sin only for him to go up and start accumulating more of the same debt. The gospel of grace didn't uncritically affirm Paul, say, hey, Paul, oh, it's so great the way that you're persecuting the church. Just carry on. It's great. No. Paul's encounter with the gospel of grace marked a decisive turn in his life. A whole new way of being in the world. It launched him out as a man reborn. What the New Testament calls born again. And so, friends, that's, that's the gospel. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what it will do for us if we receive it into our inner being through faith. That's what it's done for Kelly. That's the reason that she's going to be baptized uh, in, a, in a few minutes' time. Because the gospel transforms lives. And it does so as much today in 21st century Britain 
as it did on the Damascus Road 2,000 years ago. It has the power to change your life. How? Not by doing. Simply look to Jesus. Rest in his finished work on the cross. Trust that he's enough. Remember the formula. The gospel equals Jesus plus nothing. Let him be your everything. Stop trying to be your own savior. Let him save you. Open your hands as you would to to receive a present on Christmas morning. And open your heart to allow his grace to change your life forever. If God could save the persecutor-in-chief of the early church, there's not a person in here whose life he can't turn around. And it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've not done. You don't need to bring God a perfect moral record. You don't need to bring God your best efforts. You don't need to bring God an attendance, uh, 100% attendance score for coming to church. Uh, you, you just need to bring your nothing. Just bring him your smallness. Bring him your weakness. Bring him your failures, bring him your mistakes, bring him your regrets, bring him your insufficiency, bring him your not enoughness. Because you're not enough to get to God. But you don't need to be. Jesus comes to you. And he lived and he died and rose again to stand in your place and to be all that you need. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All you need to do, come. That's it. I suspect that there are people here this morning who are anxious, who are worried, who are worn out, trying to save themselves, trying to be good enough for themselves, for other people, for God. There are people here this morning who are burdened, who feel like there's just one more hurdle to jump over. That after you've cleared that hurdle, there's another one, and it's even higher than the last one. And it's just this constant treadmill of performance. And if I don't perform, I'm out. I'm no use. I'm not of any worth or value to anyone. Gospel says it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And so if you're one of those people this morning who's weary and burdened, hear the call of the gospel of grace. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of the gospel.